on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, soprano Mireille Asselin goes inside the huddle with our own Oliver Camacho. They nerd out on Baroque opera, ornamentation, and gesture, as well as Mireille's upcoming show for Tapestry Opera, which is 50% recital, 50% storytelling, and 100% Canadian. Plus, two-minute drill, What's giving Ashley nightmares this week? It's not the imminent success of the third season of rival podcast Aria Code. Or is it? <laughs> What's wrong, Ashley? What's wrong in the sports world, if anything? Um, For me, nothing's wrong because my Arkansas Razorbacks are number two in the SEC, number eight in the national top 25. So they're not an automatic qualifier, but Selection Sunday looks like it's going to be really good for them. It's exciting when Arkansas is good at sports. We They need to let us have this. Well, Oliver, what do you think about that? What, yeah, yeah, Oliver, what do you what think? Do you... What's your opinion, oh. Oliver? Is he, is he, is he, is he? I guess he doesn't have an opinion for once. <laughs> he's hiding just out of frame. And he's like, he's got like a little Bluetooth headset and he's telling me exactly what to say. <laughs> he's mostly, he's mostly telling me to criticize George's French. There we go. That's yes. the big one right now. Yes. <laughs> Only because he knows if he criticizes mine, I'll cry. So he has to move to George. <laughs> hey, look, Dallas, are you happy now? Dak is back on a four-year, $160 million deal for the Cowboys. That broke just as we started to record the show on Monday, March 8th. So good things coming back to Dallas. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Last weekend, Tapestry Opera premiered Our Song d'Hiver, curated by and starring Canadian-American soprano Mireille Asselin, one of the certified muses of the Opera Atelier. Mireille has also started productions at the Handel Festival in Gettingen, the Rossini Festival in Pizarro, and at the Met. Now, it's time for her most daring role to date, as our Inside the Huddle guest goes head-to-head with our own Baroque opera superfan, Oliver Camacho. What, I... Oh, oh, I'm being, I'm being told it's pronounced superfan. Is it, is it, do, does that sound right to you guys? Superfan? It's, I think that's Super the Canadian, fun. I think that's the preferred Canadian pronunciation. <laughs> sorry if that's wrong. Oliver would it's, know, probably. Yeah, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, they get to talking about the tapestry show, but not before opera drills her on all the qualities that make for the complete Baroque diva. We'll dive into their conversation with Marais, revealing why she seems like such a natural fit for the aesthetic demanded by the dynamic and stylish productions at Toronto's Opera Atelier. I think I was really fortunate to have grown up taking ballet lessons. Honestly, I think that's where it comes from. It was years of, you know, plies and jetés and proper posture and learning how to make your arms move in an elegant manner. But I discovered basically in middle school that I did not have the physique for (laughs) to become a ballerina and being on point was excruciating. And so that Hmm. quickly went the way of, uh, of, of, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So um, I did have a ballet background. And then in undergrad, when I was learning how to kind of 
add movement and stagecraft to singing. Singing was always a pretty separate thing from my dancing. I never did any musical theater or anything like that. I was always just really in a classical um, sort of trajectory. And I always found it actually quite challenging to open up when I was singing. I was always very serious. I was always very kind of still. And that was my major challenge as an undergrad was um, being pushed to kind of uncrass my arms and open my body and feel less self-conscious and bring drama into singing, which always felt kind of separate. And um, it was in you know, working with lots of fantastic acting teachers in school that I slowly um, broke down those barriers and started integrating those things. But also, uh, I was very fortunate that Marshall Pinkowski and, and Jeanette Lajeunesse Singh, um, they came in for a master class when I was in, I don't know, third or fourth year of undergrad. At Yale. And worked at, actually, this was at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto, okay. where I did my undergraduate degree. And then I was at Yale for my master's. Ah. So... Marshall came in and started working with some of us there and, and he saw something in me and, you know, just kind of gave me my first shot. He brought me into, um, the chorus at first and gave me little bit parts and then was the first person to really start hiring me for the stage. And Marshall's such a fantastic teacher of stagecraft. So I do credit him for teaching me the, how to codify what worked and what didn't work. Some things that I sort of naturally knew how to do from ballet that I just kind of knew how to move my body um, and from my fantastic acting teachers knew how to sort of infuse um, meaning into text and, and did all that work. But he was the one who really taught me. Yeah, so little things like understanding that in order for uh, a gesture on stage to read, you had to actually prepare the gesture, you know, uh, instead of just pointing to someone, you had to make sure you came in to then point out. And um, little things like that, that helped me understand what would read more, uh, read better and more immediately visually for the audience that's often quite far away. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, things also like what angles work on stage, how to relate to my colleagues, um, how to make Diagnose. sure that I wasn't pulling focus from other people <laughs> yeah. on stage, understanding that if if we want the audience to really be paying attention to my counterpart while he's singing, I need to be sending focus to him. I need to be still like little things that are just about um, that you don't see when you're watching because they just become um, part of the part of the sort of the storytelling, but um, I did learn those things sort of on the job and I credit Opera Tellier and Marshall for for teaching some of those techniques. Absolutely. You can tell in productions that aren't so well directed that there are people on the stage stealing focus because they're not they're not teaching the audience what to look at, you know. Um, and I and Marshall shows you know exactly where you're supposed to be looking. <laughs> But sometimes there's so much to look at, too. It's like you need to see it like three times to like catch everything, you know? Yeah. Um, so with Opera Tellier and with Boston Early Music Festival and some of the other stuff that's on your CV, it's clear that you get hired a lot for 18th century music. But you also are one of the few North American singers that I know of 
who gets hired for not just Handel and Mozart, but also for French Baroque music. Um, and this isn't always the case. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about what the difference is between singing like, you know, uh, high Baroque music and maybe French Baroque music and then what might, might need to come and be different for Mozart or for Bach or whatnot? Oh, sure. Um, I think French Baroque gets a really bad rap in the sort of legit opera world because it is, it's, it's an entirely different beast, I will concede. Um, it, I think the main difference between singing Handel and Mozart and then pivoting to French Baroque is that French Baroque opera really is just kind of declaimed theater way more than um, a celebration of the voice. It's a celebration of poetry, text, and drama. So uh, it's about understanding that your singing is there to serve the story. And often you'll see that the writing exists kind of in a comfort zone. It's in the mid voice. It kind of goes up for the sopranos. It often will go to like Fs and Gs, maybe As at the most. Um, and except for, you know, some party pieces, but really it's, it's about living in a place where the words can be understood. And the way that it's set is very kind of through composed and, and often people um, who are used to more standard opera are like, where are the tunes? I can't, I can't latch on to um, numbers that are happening, which is surprising for, for a Baroque opera. You would think that there would be these aria moments, but, um, um, but actually it, it really is just, just sung theater. And I, and it requires a lot of attention to text and also finesse in um, understanding how ornamentation works. It's not as flamboyant. It doesn't, it's not about showing off your abilities as a singer. It's about um, how can we lightly decorate around an important word? How do we emphasize the color or the meaning of this word? Um, things that exist in French Baroque and not in other genres are things like um, the tierce coulé, which it, for, for those who don't know, is um, essentially if you see on a page a third, like you're dropping a third at the end of a phrase, the singer is assumed to understand that you're supposed to add a little passing note in that third to sort of soften the end of the phrase and also move the syllable over to that sort of passing note. So it's like instead of landing on a on a uh, an unstressed syllable like an a uh, silent e at the end of a french word it sort of softens it like and there's all sorts of beautiful little things like that that you just there's it's almost like the french composers of this era wanted to erase the bar lines and erase yes. the downbeats and like italian music if we can say that being strong on downbeats is masculine <laughs> french music ends up being feminine yeah and yeah. it's it's almost like this is how we do it in France. We need to be as different from Italian and Germ German as possible. So we do all these things so that only French people can understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's true. It's it's uh, it again speaks to the fact that it's kind of not about the music. The music's mm -hmm. there to serve um, something that's supposed to sound like really idiomatic French. Yeah. Well. You have to do these all these three different styles, and um, how do you stay on the voice when you're singing French Baroque music? Um, 
with with practice and focus. Um, it's definitely something that I learned through trial and error as I was developing and working and figuring out how to sing while still, you know, performing. And um, do you have to like because, go into your dressing room and just like sing some Handel or like sometimes? <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes absolutely. Um, and I think I think it's also easier when you are a native speaker of a language to become a little bit too wrapped up in in speaking the language uh, that you're performing or in, you know in in sort of ex- uh, declaiming that language. At least for me, I've always found that with with French music, I have to be extra careful that I do the work to sort of separate it into its component parts, its component vowels and consonants and and things and practice it as a vocalese without any meaning. And usually if I've done that enough, then I can let allow myself to really let go and be in the moment dramatically because I've done the vocal homework and the muscle memory is there to sing it in a healthy supported way and not get too wrapped up in the drama of, of a scene. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a workshop uh, where we do um, every four years, we do a French broke opera and I see so many young singers just fall flat on their faces because once there is an Ariozo moment, they no longer have tone. Like it just, they used it all up trying to spit out the text and then they can no longer find their their tone quality anymore. So the struggle is real. (laughs) The struggle is real, but I think it's, at least in my experience, that's been the, the learning curve throughout all, all genres and, and, uh, throughout my career is just finding that balance between, um, really healthy, supported, um, conscious technique as I'm performing, but then also letting go and being in the moment and being a, a sort of a vector, you know, or vessel for, for something in a performance. And I think that the key is really just prep, just practice and prep so that you can allow yourself to be free and be in the moment and trust that your, your technique has been built. Do you feel that like, I know it's not going to happen, but do you feel like the North American audiences will ever really come to love this repertoire? I think it's tricky because I think it really, it lives so much in a detailed understanding and love of the language that it doesn't translate very well. And even with surtitles or subtitles, the, um, the beauty often does lie in some, some linguistic subtlety and understanding how that's being highlighted. So I hope I love it. And, and I think that there are moments, especially in like Charpentier, that I think that some of his um, ensemble writing is some of the most gorgeous music ever written. It's just so heartbreaking and so beautiful. And, um, and I think that uh, there's, there's so much great repertoire to be discovered that I, I, I really do hope that North American audiences sort of go down the rabbit hole a little bit more um, and that we find ways maybe to create better surtitles. Often surtitles are pretty just kind of, they're just explanatory. They're just like pure translation. And I, I wonder if there's a space where we can 
make something a bit more poetic instead of just word word for word translation for mm-hmm. for just brute understanding. I wonder if there's yeah. something and to time it, artistry in there and, and to time it so that when we have like a beautiful um you know one of these cadential trill type of things where you finally see the last word of the sentence, you know, or like the important word it finally shows up because that's what <laughs> that's what those ornaments do. They really draw attention to the moment in the phrase, you know, or the word in the phrase, you know, that is, that has like all the meaning in it, you know? And, um, oh, I just, I love that, that music so much. And I wish that I could just convince people it's so good. You just got to give it a shot. It's so just good. Yeah, it is so good. But I think it's also often we treat, um, we as performers, uh, we'll treat things with our, our sort of silk gloves on a little too much. And, and I think that there's, something to be said for kind of uh treating it with a bit a bit more robust sort of real human emotion as well and really feeling like sometimes we can be a little bit too slavish to historical correctness and mm. wanting to reproduce something so perfectly and so in the style and i think that we've taken that journey with basically every other um, period in mm-hmm. opera and in classical music, we feel we feel free to reinvent and and reset handle. We feel free to reinvent and reset Mozart. And I think that at least in my experience, I haven't seen that happen with French Baroque repertoire too too much yet. I feel like we're still in a museum piece mode, and um, it who knows it might be beneficial to to see what we what can happen when we do give it to non. Well, there's that uh, non-expert production. singers and not, you know, in terms of being expert in that style and just, right, you know, right. but, kind of bringing it into the mainstream a bit more. And Well, there was that production messy. of Les Andes Galantes <laughs> at Paris with the crunk dancing. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> yeah, I did. Just videos of it. But yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was so cool. And I do think that some of these pieces are problematic because, well, Les Andes Galantes is otherwise a racist opera, we know, you know. But so much of the, as you said, like with the drama, so much of it has to do with you have so much music that is meant to be filled up by costumes and by dancing. And so you have to figure out how to get movement into these pieces because they really were intended for there to be movement. And not all movement works with that music, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, and you bring up a really good, a really, really good point, which is these operas were also essentially ballets. They were ballets with theater and they were all these you know it's we see that too i I remember being really struck um when i i had the chance to work on uh william tell but the the french version of 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 william tell the whole shebang oh you were jemmy right yeah yeah i was um covering uh jemmy at the met a couple years ago and um and i was like man there's just this massive ballet like it's Mm -hmm. just and we're so used to saying, oh, well, we're going to cut all of these extra dance bits or we're going to cut, you know, because we have to adhere to the, the three hour timeline oh. or what have you. So but it, I was reminded how integral ballet is to sort of the history and the evolution of French opera. And that goes way back to to this Baroque stuff, too. It's just it's meant to integrate beautiful dance. And yeah, no, it's 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 kind of its own its own kettle of fish in a lot of ways.
I can't believe we've already used up so much time. I want to talk <laughs> about uh, our song Diver, which I watched earlier today. Um, can you talk to me about, well, putting this, curating this piece and what your intention was and who is your intended audience with this? I, I just have to say, for those of you who haven't seen it, and you should, it just came out like yesterday, so you have time. But um, it's so enjoyable and it's so delightful. And if you're studying French like I am right now, you will feel really good about yourself watching this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you liked it. Um, so, I mean, the intent was I was I was approached by Tapestry Opera, which is a really fantastic um, sort of primarily kind of contemporary opera company mm-hmm. uh, based in Toronto, Canada, and they've been doing a sort of an all virtual season this year because of the pandemic, and um, Michael Mori who is their artistic director, asked me if I'd be interested in curating something that spoke to French culture in Canada. And um, I was like, oh, great. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. I'd love to you know, have the chance to sort of sink my teeth into something. And, and as uh, we were discussing it more and more, um, I realized that I just, there are so many... Um, wonderful and overdue conversations on uh, identity across the world happening right now. And, and I felt very poorly placed to speak to French culture in Canada generally, because um, just to sort of give you some context, I'm actually half American. My mom is American and my father is Quebecois and I grew up in a bilingual house and I went to school in French school my whole life, but always in places in Canada that were primarily English speaking towns. So there were these really great, small, kind of vibrant French communities. And I had both languages very much at play in my uh, home life. And at school, it was really common at school to have, you know, you'd be constantly scolded by teachers for speaking English in the hallways. And, um, oh, wow. and yeah, because there's, there's this real since, you know, for, for decades and decades and really, I mean, centuries, uh, in Canada, there's been what we call the two solitudes, the French community and then the English community. And the French community is always fighting for the, the preservation of language and culture and trying to make sure that it doesn't get sort of lost throughout the generations as people become more and more anglicized. Um, so in school, there's very much this like, no, this is the place where you speak French and where we need to make sure that you don't um, pick up bad habits with your language and that you mm. learn the proper way uh, of speaking. But of course, on the playground, it's it's this, we call it franglais. It's just this mm. mix between English and French, often just kind of going back and forth depending on which word happened to be at the tip of your tongue at any given moment to sort of get your point across. So that was my experience with growing up French. And I know it's the experience of a lot of French speakers in Canada. And so I thought, you know, it'd be really interesting if there were something that I could do that spoke to my particular experience with growing up as a Francophone person, um, as opposed to trying to sort of paint a brush that represented everybody. And, and we know obviously for, for your viewers who I, and listeners who I'm sure are going to be primarily in the United States, there's an understanding that Quebec is the French province. 
Um, but there are pockets of French, commu uh, French communities everywhere in Canada. And on the east coast of Canada, there's um, uh, a, a community called the Acadians, which are directly linked to the Cajuns in the south uh, in Louisiana. So it's like a, it's a, a really sort of amazing, um, linguistically colorful, uh, really musical Yeah, it community. is. <laughs> you interview yeah. an Acadian guitarist, and when he starts talking, I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. Is that French? <laughs> yeah, no, and that's how I grew up speaking. Um, and I, I, I lived out there when I was a child, and I moved back to Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada. It's a very bilingual town, has its own accent. And so um, when I moved back to Ottawa, people didn't, they, you know, it was kind of some giggling about how I spoke, which is totally, you know, totally fine. It's just every pocket of Canada's French community really, like the, the accent can vary wildly from place to place even just across the river you can have a completely different way of speaking um so that's what i i did i i just so there's some i tried to find some pieces that live in kind of an in-between linguistic place mm. um and i also really wanted to feature some fantastic french canadian composers who are you know working and have have really great careers in French Canada, but that uh, English Canadians probably had never encountered because even though we live in parallel so close to each other, there's very little kind of cultural sharing that happens. And I've always been a big believer that um, we ch we achieve you know greater understanding and peace and and um, coming together when we can exchange culturally. I think that that's our in with each other to be able to share um, our music and our language and our food and our stories. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, why not try to do that a little bit for this for this concert? Well, like I said, I'm, I told you before we started recording that I'm, I'm taking French lessons again. And had I learned, I think, how to speak French, like in Ottawa, I think I'd be much more laid back about it. Like, <laughs> it's so easy to hear the spellings of words with some of those accents, whereas like in like Parisian French, for example, it's like, what? Wait, 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 wait a second. What word did you say? You have no idea because everything goes so fast and, you know, um, they smash words together sometimes and... Um, I don't know. It just feels like, like with French Baroque opera, it's like, we're going to do all these things so that only we can enjoy it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like the Canadian approach, at least what I heard on, on our song d'hiver, uh, I felt like I could follow the whole time. And it's not like you're translating everything. It's like sometimes people are talking in both French and English. And um, yeah, you, like you might miss a little bit of it, but you'll get back in very shortly. And you said that was intentional, right? To just keep it, to keep it yeah. going, you know? Yeah, I, um, the, the experience of bilingualism in Canada, um, especially in a government town like Ottawa, which is very um, bilingual to start out with, but also just populated by bureaucrats and like government events. Um, whenever you have a formal event like this or, or uh, like a swearing in ceremony or, or any, any sort of um, government event, um, the, the two languages have to be integrated because it, we have two official languages in the country. So there's, but the, this, the way that that's done is often instead of a pure, you know, we, we say, we say what we want to say once in English and then we say the exact same thing in French. There's often just this, 
one sentence in one language, one sent the next sentence in the next language, and a back and forth like this. And I do think that there's a, that's something that is really beautiful because it sort of forces people to um, see where their blind spots are sometimes and and be challenged, even if you don't fully understand the meaning of what the last, you know, 10 seconds of, of speaking were. Usually there's there's like a recap that will happen later and you, you do understand by the end of the day exactly mm-hmm. what's been said. So um, that's kind of, and that's often how uh, bilingual speakers uh, speak to each other here um, is kind of a going back and forth as well. Um, we did try to have we, we do have bilingual subtitles throughout, but they but they um, they swap in the same way that we speak or that you'll be um, experiencing the music. So if we have an interview moment that is in both languages, if we if we switch to French, there will be English titles underneath. Mm-hmm. And when we switch back to English, there will be French titles underneath. And likewise with the singing, there's um, if we're singing in, if I'm singing in French, you'll see English titles. If I'm singing in English, you'll see French titles. There are if you're singing some... in Auvergne, you get both. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So, um, so it was designed to be accessible completely to to both Anglo anglophones and francophones. Um, but uh, I'm okay challenging the audience a little bit to meet me halfway. <laughs> yeah. So the show opens up with, I guess, what you're calling the thesis piece, uh, which I guess we can describe as like a tongue twister, brain twister that vacillates in between um, French and English. And if you are a native French speaker, you will miss all the H's. <laughs> and if you are, I don't know. I mean, like, I can't even, I don't even know how you do it. Um, can you talk about that piece? And maybe we'll listen to a little bit of it. Sure. So this is a piece called um, Anglicisme or Anglicisms. Uh, and it's by a Spanish uh, Quebecois composer named José Evangelista. And I actually heard this when I was a student way back in the day, and my mind was blown because I was like, this is, this is how I speak right here. This is this mash between French and English back and forth. And it was like clever and tongue in cheek. And I just, I've been waiting for an excuse to program it for ages. So this felt um, perfect. And essentially, he wrote this amazing set of 19 songs that are all exercises in, um, it's called exercice de style, so stylistic exercises. He takes the same text, which is recited right off the top, so you understand exactly what the straight text is. And then he does 19 different treatments, and like one's mechanical and one is Italianism. So it's that's the kind of an Italian style. And this is the Anglicisms one. So it's uh, it's basically re- telling you the same story you've heard 19 times at this point. You know, if you were doing the whole set. Um, but using it, swapping back and forth between French and English words as you go. Um, and it really is like, I, it was so fun to, to sort of uh, get feedback from people who watched the premiere of the show. Everyone was like, this is how I speak. This is my, <laughs> like, for, and often for, for Anglophones too, who are learning French, they're like, this is how I try to get sentences out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm turning an English verb into a French verb and just by adding an ER at the end. And I'm just kind of like <laughs> messing my way through. And um, the music's very sort of jazzy and fun too. He's clearly taking a, a light tone with it. So yeah, it just felt like 
It's like, well, this is what I want to say, so <laughs> why not open the concert with it? <laughs> Anglicisme by Jose Evangelista, just one of the many Canadian composers represented in tapestry operas bilingual Our Song d'Hiver. You can practice your franglais and watch all of our Song d'Hiver starring Mireille Asselin for free as part of Tapestry Opera's current season of live stream concerts. It's tapestryopera.com and it's a. Sorry. Oh, it's. I thought it was Michelin, Oliver. Oh, it's Michelin. Okay. Apparently, it's a Michelin star. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. And it is the same as the tires. This is is actually Canadian related as well. Not super recent news. Last week, Wayne Gretzky's dad died. Oh, no. The the father of the greatest hockey player of all time. And I was definitely moved by that. Are we in the middle of Canada's month of mourning in honor of that loss? I mean, just wait till the great one dies and then it's going to (sighs) be... They'll be pouring out Molson and just Pe- perish drinking, you know, freebasing maple syrup. And They're just going to, Tim. all the Tim Hortons are going to close down. Just, it's going to be real sad. Ashley, how's things in uh, NBA land? You know, it's interesting. Uh, so they were talking very recently with the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, who is a very interesting looking gentleman, if you've never seen him. He kind of looks like an evil villain in like a like a PG-13 movie. Um, but he's actually like a super articulate and pretty nice guy. Yeah, no, he's awesome. Like, he's <laughs> Which is racist, weird so- for a major sports commissioner. Isn't it? Isn't it? But they, I mean, they've been on the forefront of a lot of stuff, especially when it comes to like social rights and civil rights of last summer. Um, Mm. He said in a press conference, he's not requiring NBA players to get the COVID vaccine, but he's pretty sure that most will. I thought that was an interesting take. Um, I would assume that this would be one place where they would very much want their players to get vaccinated, but I, I don't know. I guess he's making the right move, not forcing them to, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, and considering that this week is the, the anniversary basketball. of the day that the NBA announced the COVID pandemic, here we oh, are. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, I'm literally having fl- flashbacks right now. Uh, we've kept, come such a long way on Zoom. <laughs> such All a right. Two-minute drill coming up now. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Atlanta Opera is partnering with Clipper and Company to develop a more comprehensive diversity and inclusion program. Our city has always been a leader in the fight for civil rights and equality, reads a press release. We are fully committed to creating a real shift in the company's culture and actions as we move forward with purpose and intention. 
What can Juilliard learn from pop music? That's the question asked by violinist Emma Sutton-Williams, who once nearly missed out on a gig because she had never heard of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, quote, The Juilliard School trained me in excellence for a traditional orchestral career, but why is it continuing to prepare brilliant students to only enter the world of dying orchestras with downward spiraling funding without helping them explore other genres to survive a changing market? Perhaps Juilliard should be hiring friend of the show, Zach Finkelstein. Or teaching a course on the boss, Boss 101. Uh, let's see. English conductor John Andrews has launched a new opera company to champion unknown and neglected works. Red Squirrel Opera aims to co-produce one stage project and one recording each year, researching and uncovering English language theater works from the 18th to the 20th centuries, and will open a production of The Dancing Master at the 2021 Buxton International Festival. Oh, The Dancing Master, that old chestnut. English National Opera has announced that it will be selling its rehearsal space in North London, the company said that a more, quote, flexible and modern space was needed to replace the aging Lillian Bayless studio, which ENO has owned since 1980. According to a somewhat sketchy study from the UK-based OnBuy retail site, opera lovers are some of the happiest music fans out there. The unassailable scientific study looked at subreddits from 27 different genres and found that the positive or happy language was used 56 times for every 100 comments about opera, beaten out only by jazz and death metal music. Clearly some people haven't been listening to whatever Weston has in his top 40 playlist. It's mostly Votsek. The Metropolitan Opera and WQXR have announced a season renewal for Aria Code, the podcast created and hosted by top opera box score rival Rhiannon Giddens. The third season begins this week with a deep dive into Nessun Dorma. In retaliation, OBS will introduce a new segment called All Shall Sleep. Your move, Giddens. Facebook users over the last week saw their feeds flooded with nightmare fuel in the form of deep nostalgia an online service that uses artificial intelligence to animate the faces of old photographs. Dead composers? No exception. Classic FM compiled a series of animations such as Beethoven, Haydn, and Bach, seemingly specifically to make sure Ashley Hardgrave can never have a peaceful night's sleep ever again. Are they gone yet? Are they gone? In trade news, bass baritone Ryan Speedo Green has been named the first artist in residence of the Texas Opera Alliance, which comes with a two-week residency. Green will complete master classes and a performance at the end of March in Austin. Opera Leipzig has announced that Tobias Wolf will take over as the company's intendant in August 2022. Romania's Yashi National Opera named Florin Daniel Chandru as its interim general manager, while previous GM Beatrice Ransaya is under investigation for embezzlement. This week's Yellow Cards. Argentina. Teatro Colón de Buenos Aires reopened last week with the first of a 14-concert cycle of performances celebrating the 100th birthday of composer Astor Piazzolla. France. L'Opera Grand Avignon has announced that it will reopen at the beginning of the 21-22 season. The opera has been closed for renovations as well as the usual COVID-19 concerns. USA. Friend of the show, soprano Brenda Ray, will headline a series of concert performances this May as Opera San Antonio presents highlights of Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor. The performances will be limited to 90 minutes each, with no intermission. USA again! Boulder Opera has launched its second attempt at live pandemic opera after a spike in November shut down their production of La Boheme. 
This time, they're putting on the Marriage of Figaro in a space with garage doors open to the outside to limit COVID risks. USA again, again. Central City Opera plans to hold its festival this summer, foregoing their usual indoor space for outdoor performances of Rigoletto, Dido and Aeneas, and Carousel. This week's red cards. Italy, La Scala has postponed two live streams after an outbreak of COVID-19. 35 ballet dancers and three members of the ballet company have tested positive for the virus. France. Opera du Rhin Normandie has canceled all March performances in light of tightening restrictions in the country. The company hopes to be able to reopen by mid-April. France. Again. Joyce Salcori's recital at Opera Nationale du Rhin, originally scheduled for March 26th, has been canceled. Netherlands and Holland. Dutch National Opera has canceled its remaining productions due to continuing COVID restrictions with no opera before September. Exit stage right, violinist and manager Lorenzo Anselmi, husband of Renata Scotto, has died at the age of 87. Anselmi was a violinist at La Scala where he met Scotto. They were married 60 years and had two children. American film and Broadway star Joan Weldon has died at 90. She starred for three years as Marion in the original national tour of The Music Man, headed the national tour of Oklahoma in 1963, and a year later, she became the first performer on the stage of the New York State Theater, Lincoln Center, in a revival of The Merry Widow. She was often dubbed Filmdom's fairest exterminator for her turn as a young scientist investigating giant, radiation-mutated ants in the 1954 sci-fi classic, Them. And on this day, March 8th, in 1752, it was the first performance of Handel's Oratorio Jephthah in London. In 1849, it was the first performance of Otto Nikolai's opera Mary Wives of Windsor in Berlin. In 1857, it was the birth of Italian composer Ruggiero Leoncavallo in Naples. In 1939, it was the birth of Welsh tenor Robert Tare in Barry Glamoran. In 1942, it was the birth of mezzo-soprano Patricia Payne in Dunedin, New Zealand. And in 1979, it was the first performance of Wolfgang Marine's opera Jakob Lenz at Staatsoper Hamburg. And that's your two-minute drill. And that was a clip of the wonderful Welsh tenor Robert Tear singing Britain's Serenade for Tenor Horn and Strings. Uh, on that recording so is the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Strings, conducted by Carlo Maria Giulini and Dale Clevenger on the horn. Damn. Ah, it's just a... you gotta love Britain. You do. And you speaking, do. Of Britain... speaking of Britain, England. <laughs> well, I just look. It is no secret that English national opera is having some financial problems, right? Everybody is having financial problems in this pandemic. Those problems at ENO were only compounded by the pandemic, right? So is it a surprise that they are selling the chunk of real estate in North London? It's going to fetch, it's probably not going to fetch mm, 
hundreds of millions of pounds, but it'll probably fetch in the tens of millions of pounds. Is that going to be enough to like, you know, help ENO along for the long haul? Not sure about that. It got me. I mean, it's it's one of. It's one of those problems that, you know, it's not just the pandemic. It's the it's the fact that companies and artists are starting to realize that, you know, in the wake of Brexit, um, there might be some issues with getting certain stars in certain times and uh, being able to pay everyone adequately to get to make sure they make the trip. Um, and I'm sure there's there's been more than a little uh, panic about the post pandemic situation, as well as what's going on now over there. I mean, this is interesting because. It, it, to me, it seems like a very European thing to not uh, be able to rehearse in the same building where you're performing, right? Especially in Britain, especially in London, where space is at a premium, right? So the mm-hmm. Lillian Bayless Studios are North London. English National Opera is at the Coliseum. Iconically central so, London. even. Yeah, iconically so. <laughs> um, it got me thinking about, like, what makes a really good rehearsal space. And I think, if, man, everybody just has nothing but complaints about every rehearsal space they've ever been in right too dark too bright too big too small <laughs> not enough trap doors i mean for very 20, trap doors. Uh, uh, just very three a disappointing like. amount of pulleys yeah <laughs> at least now we know hepa filters first everything else comes later i will say <laughs> absolutely i will say one thing i did not appreciate about that storyline is they called the structures aging facilities and then they mentioned the year 1980 as something else that also came out of the year 1980 i don't appreciate being called aging okay <laughs> Well, it's been around for longer than that. Before that, it was, uh, I think it was Decca Studios. And I'm not sure how how far back uh, it extends. But um, I mean, the 1980s, you know, as the young millennial of the group here, I mean. (laughs) I mean, that was a year before Cats even premiered on the West End. I'm sorry, Ashley. Oliver Oliver isn't here tonight, so I can't make fun of him for being old. So I got to do it with somebody. It's me. I'm the elder states lady. I get it. I get it. It's fine. I also get that I took that a little too to heart in the byline, but I, you know, I can't miss a good joke. It was really important to do. So thank you for letting me have that moment. Weston, this, this study looks extremely scientific about what fish. Oh yeah. The methodology is just (laughs) absolutely bulletproof. (laughs) Because uh, I was looking at, I I saw the classic F classic FM posted this initially. That's how I, I saw it. And it's like a study says that they're happiest. I'm like, Oh, I wonder how they could possibly know it. And then it like directs me to like basically like uh, British Amazon. And it's like, we looked at Reddit. <laughs> I mean, no, at least subreddit. Funny. Subreddit. <laughs> if they'd managed to stumble on Parterre Box, I guarantee you that Opera would not have been yeah, high up on the list have... of positive comments. <laughs> That was exactly what I was thinking. I was like, you know, how many times have we said nasty things about, like, the Met that would have just, like, absolutely nuked this study? I feel really bad for the little intern who uh, who was forced to, uh, who was like, they were like, do something about music. And they're like, I don't know. I only know Reddit. And uh, <laughs> who likes, who posts good things in Reddit? Opera people? And only opera metal. people, apparently. I mean, no, that's pretty impressive. Metal fans. And jazz and death metal. So if you really want to make like the ultimate happy playlist, it's apparently La Cittara Romano, uh, Black Sabbath, and Duke Ellington. So that's, that's your happy playlist. Don't right there. steal and our apparently... idea, Rhiannon Giddens. <laughs> I was about to say, like, you... <laughs> Speaking of being the uh, being old and uh, being threatened by uh, new up and comers, uh, Aria Code entering season three, uh, talking about Nessendorma really hitting like that that really fresh content. I think 
Uh, no mean, one's ever really examined that Aria before. We'll see when Aria Code handles the Hall of Presidents, the website, coming to Ashley's <laughs> Nightmares near you. These <laughs> no, deep no. fakes animations no. of no, composers. No, no, no. <laughs> it is... It looks like they are just going to pop right out of your screen. It's Yeah, it's very and scary. Pa- and definitely one of the contributing factors is the fact that, like, name a second painting of Beethoven that you've ever seen before, besides the one where he's like this, with the with the pencil. You know the one I'm talking about. He's laser beaming into your soul. That's what he's doing. And if you add movement to that, he will hit your actual soul. It's very upsetting. I do not like it. I do not care for it. People are starting to do it with their dead relatives. I haven't slept since Thursday, okay? I cannot... My mother has sent me like so many uh, creepy ghost photos of uh, of all of my relatives who died in 1910. Nope. Um, no. uh, it's uh, no. I actually find it fascinating, but it is extremely spooky, and they really should have released it around Halloween to make it more appropriate. But the reason why they look spooky is because they look real. It looks real. That's yeah. what makes yeah. it so bad. And yeah. And it's so funny how when you add motion into paintings like that that have such stylized facial fig features, all of a sudden they look like they could be alive today as opposed to like any I mean, nope. did you see that picture of like, this is what the Roman Emperor Vitellius probably looked like, uh, <laughs> yes. reconstructed from his bust and it's just like that guy owns a pizza shop <laughs> that's, just, that's just a dude yeah, his name is Rick and he lives six <laughs> blocks from here, okay? No, well, I had I, I do think it's like uh, this kind of thing is really interesting because, you know, this kind of thing pops up on social media every once in a while, whether it's like, you know, realistic artist, artist conceptions or like animated stuff, even though it can be a little bit creepy. I think it is a really good tool for maybe newbies to classical music and opera to be like, these were also people. These are not just people who are setting up on. a. It's easy to see a <laughs> painting and think this person is unassailable. This person is uh is a legend we could never measure up to a beethoven or whatever nope. but in reality you know we're uh we all have the creative capacities within us and we can all be creepy dead creepy photos online ghosts <laughs> no i mm, no no i have the ability for for the newbies that need it y'all can have it i have the ability to compartmentalize and one of the things that's important for me is to know that the people in the paintings are dead and they're not coming to get me <laughs> and when those paintings move that line gets blurred and then I don't sleep for two weeks. Uh, I have a, I have an aunt that was like, oh, we should do this. You want to do this with grandma and grandpa? No, Aunt Landa, I don't want to do that. I want to sleep sometime before 2021. It's over. So that you can attend Red Squirrel. I was going to say, I've had the opposite reaction to many a production when I was like, this thing is, this production is moving in real time and it's freaking me out. I wish it would just like stop and freeze and then it wouldn't be so scary. Oh. I um, we have a lot of links to stories on our on our website operaboxcore.com. The uh, creepy composers will not be one of those links. Nope. Red Squirrel. <laughs> okay, let, hang on a second. Let me let me get this straight. So the opera company is called Red Red Squirrel Opera. Yes. Do you Red know Squirrel. why? Well, it's 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 something about like digging up digging up old old chestnuts, right? Yeah, because red squirrels are also endangered and collect oh. things and preserve them. That's actually good. Uh, that's a good, like, uh, several little levels of metaphor. I respect it. Yep. I feel like I George mean, did not initially respect the name of the institution, <laughs> but he thought he was opera's I, only red I kinda squirrel. I kind of like it. It's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a dreadful name, but who, who I mean, nobody should care. That... <laughs> 
it, I, what I, this is what I don't get about this. So mm-hmm. uncovering mainly English language theater works from the 1700s to the 1900s, mm-hmm. including Arthur Sullivan. I mean, I feel like. I, I assume they're Gilbert. talking about the non-Gilbert works. Okay. Of, of which the Gilbertless Sullivan. Yeah, the Gilbertless <laughs> Sullivan. I, if we want to revisit this whole thing, please, I, we, again, very I pro swear Sullivan. to you that we do not. <laughs> I, <laughs> we're good. We're, we're totally good, Weston. Thank you for I am your totally service. on board. I'm no, totally good. on board. I listen, think it's man, great. Listen, man, listen, man, hang on a second. Listen, man. You, we can hardly <laughs> get people out to go see, like, Mozart, Verdi, and Puccini. How are we going to go out and see or listen to Malcolm Arnold? Like, well, that's, that's, that, I feel like that's point? exactly the point. Is that yeah, yeah exactly opera treating I, opera as a museum is like part of how we got here, where the yeah. the repertoire really calcified, and part of that was because all the operas that Weston like are too experimental for the standard audience. Fair. And you know there, is, but there really is something in the middle there, and treating the repertoire as like a living, breathing thing in this way will there's help nothing, us to treat it. There's nothing living and breathing about quote repertoire lying buried in libraries and archives. <laughs> but there well, is isn't. Gotta, gotta reanimate well, it like a like a zombie you know yeah, there is, there is if it hasn't been done in 200 years i would say that like uh, our, like I, I i firmly believe that my favorite opera of all time is an opera that has not been recorded do you know what i mean there's something out there that was too edgy for its time or really hit like a moment of zeitgeist and then like disappeared or before had a bad... It, before it sold out and did an Apple iPod commercial. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yes, I guess the YouTube of the opera world. I, I really admire like the the uh, the mission of trying to just like seeing what's what else is out there that isn't, you know, a war horse um, that isn't also necessarily a brand new opera. I really like the idea of maybe finding no something saying, that was always buried, you know? No one is saying that we have to do the Dancing Master every year, but we'll never know if it was good or not if no one does it. Yeah, I mean, True. no one's no one knows if the Dancing Master is good unless they do it. I think of it like this. I was thinking about this earlier, is that, you know, we often think that, like, when we are uncovering these things, we are hopeful that they will be very successful. They might not be. I also don't really think that's the point. I think that we're now in this era where we're going back and telling these weird, interesting stories that are entertaining for an hour or two and, like, you learn something and then you go on. It doesn't have to be a part of the, like, modern lexicon and part of your canon all the time. I I compare it a lot to... um, I I really love to watch documentaries and I like to watch super weird documentaries that are like this crazy offshoot of something I'm halfway remotely but not really interested in. And for that 90 minutes, I get to do a deep dive in a story that I would otherwise never learn anything about. And it's entertaining for that 90 minutes. And then I go about my life and I probably don't think about it again, with the exception of the documentary Screwball. It's amazing and you should all watch it. Um, And it's about the MLB uh, steroids crisis with uh, A-Rod. Oh, it's not about Carol Lombard? No, no, not that one. Um, but yeah, no, so that's, I don't know, that that was kind of the way I thought about it. It's like, if you're looking for this to be something that's like a commercial smash, yeah, this does, this feels like a terribly futile mission. If it's something that's just interesting and educating audiences and can be like a fun pet project, I mean, because they're only doing like two things a year. So if it's just a fun pet project for those reasons, less bad. That's fair. I also, that's I also fair. think that it's expanding... Like, it's like, I think that expanding the repertoire is a good precedent to set as we're looking to increase the number of voices that we that we are representing in like the opera repertoire that exploration should be encouraged. I mean, 
it would be better if it's not like there aren't plenty of composers who are writing right now, but starting to question why the old works have become this canon that is so sacrosanct is part of the like undoing of that stultification. Kind of like uh, bring, uh, inviting Bruce Springsteen to Juilliard, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't like my idea for Bruce 101 as a freshman level music course? Well, you I sure? think this is a really uh, this is a really interesting article that I think um, that a lot of our listeners should check out uh, from Rolling Stone. Um, this one we can and, link on the website, by the way. Yes, so. yes. Um, it, George, it's, don't uh, put those animations up there. Don't you do it? I can't. I can't do it. Go it's ahead. It's basically about it. this 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 violinist who um, basically like um, saw an opportunity for a gig for basically doing backup uh, instrumentals for Bruce Springsteen. And uh, they were like, oh, you know, uh, whatever. Who is that? And um, and they, they asked their spouse, like, do you think it's worth going out for this gig? And then the spouse in like horror was like, you don't know who Bruce Springsteen is, <laughs> you know. And uh, to, to one extent, you know, I, I do understand, you know, the, the purpose of a conservatory uh, is really to like really hone in on one specific type of music. But there is something to the fact that, you know, knowing that not every person going through a classical music education right now is going to be able to find a gig with a symphony orchestra that will pay the bills forever. And that's why a lot of people like end up dropping out, you know. And of course, there's also something to be said for, you know, the, the music theory behind uh, pop styles and non-Western music styles also has stuff to offer that don't necessarily show up in like 19th century, you know, opera uh, or whatever. And I think that there is right now a big push to really have these schools sort of reckon with that and try to c consider how best can we serve our students so that they're not so focused on one thing that they're completely without any yeah. other skills related to music. It's, it's a, uh, so it's, it's a question. School. It's a question of equity, right? Like that is right. the term of the 2010s, if not the 2020s, right? Racial equity, socionomic equity. Can we not have equity of style and genre in the way that we teach music? Uh, can we not have equity between European music of the 18th and 19th centuries, American music of the 20th and the 21st centuries. I feel like also there's another layer to this is that, first of all, conservatories don't uh, ever assume that they would have to instruct on any of this, both from a, a cultural and a, and a career training standpoint. They're also operating under the like assumed notion that American students, at the very least, would come in with this de facto knowledge of these different rock and roll artists. Um, if you, you know, but that, that kind of pigeonholes the, the longer that time passes on. I mean, I know who Bruce Springsteen is because he was very popular during my childhood. My parents liked him. But I mean, unless you're a, you know, a, a presumably Caucasian person from either the East Coast or the upper Midwest, whose parents are between <laughs> the ages of, I don't know, 58 and 75 years old, you, you may not have had as much access to the boss as the rest of us did. So. Yeah, but, but with all due respect, like, do your research, right? Like, you get an email about a gig, just, like, do your research. 
you know? We're fighting for pop cultural literacy as well as musical literacy. You know, it's just important. Well, and I, you know, for <laughs> for some kids, you know, I she had the very opposite experience that I did coming into conservatory. She she has this knowledge of all of this classical music because apparently her parents loved her enough to like make sure she had it. Uh, I, on the other hand, had a full fundamental knowledge of pop culture, which should shock no one for the amount of pop culture references I throw in in the show. <laughs> but so I had to. I had to reverse engineer what she's engineering. And so I had to come in with like, I, there were a lot of composers I should have known that I didn't. Uh, and they were a little bit kinder to me, but also not. Cause they were like, we don't know why, you know, Bruce Springsteen where th- that doesn't serve <laughs> you here. And I'm like, well, it could have served her. So it's, it's a very interesting conversation because it, depending on which, which background of these backgrounds you come from, her argument is either incredibly valid and like the way we need to shift music education in the next century, or this is just somebody who grew up in a weird way and is a little bit tone deaf. All right. The article is going to be linked on our website. It's operaboxword.com. You can also let us know what you're thinking about it. Operaboxword gmail.com. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Another great show of Opera Box Score in the books. Thanks for hanging out with us wherever you are and however you're listening. Good call, bad call. Oliver's got a good call. He's not on the live show tonight, so he's just relaxing at home with a nice. He's enjoying the spring. Deco Poivre and a Malbec. Matt Cummings. Uh, we'll link to this piece on our website. The New York Times did another one of those, like, five minutes that'll make you love tenors. And I get it. We are very unlovable, generally. Uh, <laughs> but they asked a wide variety of people to pick their favorite excerpts of tenor singing. And there are some gems in there. This is the appropriate amount of UC Burling to have. And don't let anyone tell you differently. Check it out. Weston Williams. Since Oliver isn't here, I can actually get one in here. Uh, the Lisa Davidson Wagner and Verdi recital disc is going as going to be coming out this month. I think uh, maybe next week, maybe uh, weeks, March twenty sixth. I think twenty sixth, so a couple yeah. of weeks. Um, and uh, uh, there have already been little clips released online here and there of the recording session. They recorded it during the pandemic. Um, I'm very excited for her to do the Weizendonk leader because. That she is voice. the next big thing, and it's. I'm so excited. Yeah, so excited. Ashley Hardgrave. Good call. Speaking of pop culture, uh, Classic FM did an article on a very expansive Twitter thread from the beginning of March. Uh, Vincent Alexander is a cartoonist and an animator, uh, and he does a deep dive into how a whole generation of kids learned about classical music, whether they realized it or not, through cartoons. Uh, and so he goes into this whole thing about Liszt and Donizetti and Schubert and Schumann and Rossini and opera quotes and piano concerto quotes. And it's really, you know. Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. Exactly, exactly. But so many more than that. Because even I, like, I knew some of them, but there were some. It's a a really fun article to go back in. And we'll link that on the website as well. Now, that actually is something that I saw and I was not late to the party on. I was very late to the party on the national anthem debacle at the CPAC (laughs) meeting. Boy, were you. This has been like a month. It that's, not, that's not true. Death, that, that's, George. It hasn't been a month. That's the horse is dead, this, dead, look, cremated. It's, it's not. It's not dead because everyone's everyone's got it wrong. That that oh. performance that performance was intentional. Oh. Okay, 
Listen, I want you to hear me out. The, the, it, um, the keys in F starts in F major, modulates to F sharp major. That is very oh. difficult to do. It is very difficult to sing, to modulate consistently into multiple keys, to sing in microtones. That was Cut his mic. He knows too much. Cut the mic. Cut the mic. That was an intentional performance <laughs> by a singer who knew what she was doing and had a very delicate and deliberate command of her voice. She was doing what Charles Eyes was doing like a hundred years ago. All right. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com and subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are surely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is not okay. It's okay. Our creative consultants, Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editor, Weston Williams, for our guest, Mireille Asselin, and your co-host, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. Oh, I got it right. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera on Oprah. We're back with an all-new show next week without me. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Barack stars. Join us.